This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. It's fair to say that our guest this week, Arushan Pillay, was more than a little surprised when he received a call 12 months ago from Attorney General Jill Hennessy offering him a position as a judge of the County Court of Victoria. As we'll hear, Judge Pillay's lifelong pursuit of knowledge and insight made him the perfect candidate to serve our community. He has actively sought mentors throughout his life and been influenced by leaders near and far, including the great Muhammad Ali. He crept into my consciousness. I I read some books about him when I was a young teenager and he inspired me. He inspired me greatly. He was a young black man who faced prejudice um, where he grew up. And one of the things that I think I took from him was always that he decided to stand up for what he believed in. And I took a lot from the fact that he refused to go to the Vietnam War. I took a lot from that. And in some ways that that is a lesson you learn from lots of other people, that you, one, have to stand up for what you believe in. And when you do that, you have to be prepared to give things away. And he gave a lot away at that time. And I thought, what is it that you can do to change a system like that? What is it can you do to try to deal with injustice in the world? And I was hopeless at maths, so I was never going to do science and I was never going to do medicine, so law was it. interesting story. Your family is Tamil, Indian, born in South Africa. You grew up in Tasmania. Take us back to your early childhood in South Africa and tell us about that and tell us about how you got to Tasmania. Uh, Well, I was born in 1971. Um, My family by that stage had been in South Africa since the late 1800s. We were part of a big wave of migration from the southern part of India through Mauritius and then to South Africa. My mother comes from a family of 10 and uh, that was a very common thing for Indian families in South Africa at that time. Uh, But being such a large family, uh, I think my grandfather uh, decided that with that number of children, he had to make sure that the future of the family was secured by trying to make sure that we, my mother's brothers and sisters, all got educations and moved into positions where they could support each other and take on uh, important roles in the community. But that was really cruel by the fact that apartheid and the regime in South Africa began to gain strength um, in the 1930s and 40s so that by the time my mother and her brothers and sisters came to try to enter the education system uh, and look for jobs within South Africa, their paths were becoming blocked. And that meant that my grandfather's plan for the family within South Africa was really one which had to be changed. And it was one which became uh, such that my mother's brothers and sisters had to leave South Africa to obtain opportunity. And that was either education uh, or jobs. So really me leaving South Africa in 1976 was 
part of this amended plan that my grandfather would come up with to uh, get us out of South Africa so that we could get opportunity, we could get education and we could succeed in life. And at this time, your father had died. He died when you were a young child? He did. My father was a mechanic. Um, He died in 1974. So you were a three-year-old? Yes, that's right. And he died of various different ailments. Um, But by that stage, my mother uh, and my father, for that matter, had decided that we were going to leave. And that's why she went on with the plan to uh, look for another place to go, and that ended up being Australia and Tasmania in particular. Why Tasmania? It's not someone that would immediately spring to mind as a destination to emigrate to. What had happened was that my mother's two eldest brothers, uh, they had been sent to India uh, in the 60s to obtain uh, education in India, one as a doctor, one as a dentist, and They'd been accepted into Australia, but on a limited basis. They had been accepted on the basis that they would go and practice in uh, regional communities, in particular on the east coast of Tasmania. But once they were there, they, seeing what had happened to my mother, decided that they would sponsor her to come out. And so Tasmania was it for the Naidu family at that stage, or the Pillay family for me. So you're a five or six-year-old, you come to this uh, strange country, Australia. What was it like? There weren't many Indian kids, Indian South African kids, in Tasmania in the 1970s. No, but I, I was very lucky. I mean, I had my cousins who were down on the East Coast and then uh, I also had um, one, of, one of my uncles, he moved back to Launceston and he had three girls and they were about the same age as I am. And so that was, I was very lucky in that sense because I had some family. But it's true, we were uh, in the vast minority in the Tasmanian community. There weren't many um, Indians at all, certainly not in Launceston. So we were pretty much it. I think there was one other family, Indian family, and there was a Sri Lankan family. And uh, that was the South Asian community as far as I could tell. And so what about school? You're um, the only Indian kid or the only Indian kids with your cousins in the school, a normal school life or was there any discrimination or anything different about or it was just you were unaware, you were unaware, the other kids were unaware, we just got on with going to school? Uh, after, I think, two years, my cousins left um, and they went, back to, they went back to Zimbabwe. So I was, uh, I changed schools and I went to uh, the local public school and it was um, pretty much as you said, I think either I was... Um, quite unaware or the other kids were unaware, but I look back on it and I think it was a fairly uneventful sort of time. It was a wonderful time, but it wasn't marred with great episodes of racism. I certainly had those moments um, when I was either picked on or called out for being different, but I had a great group of friends and they always stuck up for me and that's one of the things that I would always, that I always look back on really fondly. About Because I think at those moments when you experience uh, racism or you experience being picked on for being different, what comes with it is an incredible feeling of loneliness. And that happens whether you're six or whether you're 48. It still happens to me today. I feel incredibly lonely when it happens. But the salve for that is the friendship 
that springs up at those moments. And I always had that in Tasmania. Someone would always stand at my shoulder and take on that burden for me. So that's one of the great things I have, more experiences I have about that time. And you decide then in your late teens that you want to do law. What was the attraction to do law? I think a couple of things. One is this overwhelming feeling that by the time you had got to um, 17 or 18, that you had some responsibility. So I understood enough about our family history by that stage to understand my place in that. And I was at the end of a lot of people who had tried extraordinarily dif- in extraordinarily difficult times. Those people who had left India to come to South Africa for a better life, those South African Indians who had dealt with apartheid, being in a new land, and then seeing opportunities shut down, and then my mother's generation who had had to leave South Africa to seek opportunity. And those people, all those people in that chain for over 100 years had sought to put someone like me in the position that I was. And that position was that I had the opportunity for education in any field and I had the opportunity to go into an occupation which was important and financially rewarding and therefore be in a position to help other people. So I I felt that. I felt that very keenly at that age. But I was also partly motivated by the simple academics of it, you know, that I was good at school. I had learnt that that was one of the things I had to be good at. Um, My family expected that. And I suppose it was a little bit of hubris. I thought, well, I better pick one of these, you know, upper end courses, (laughs) otherwise, you know, um, I'll be letting everyone down, including myself. You finish your law at the University of Tasmania and you come to Melbourne, I think effectively knowing no one. Yes, I, I knew uh, some people uh, who had passed through Tas Uni but who were Victorians, so I had them on the radar. But Melbourne was um, just a big smoke, really. So how did you go about getting a job? Did you find a job quickly? No, I'd realised in my final year of university in Tasmania that I didn't really want to stay there. I, it was a small place. It was not really going to offer me a great many opportunities. And I was feeling very isolated. I was feeling very different to everyone in Tasmania. And I wanted to be in a place where uh, it was racially and ethnically diverse. I, I liked the politics in Melbourne and the people I'd met uh, who'd come to Tasmania from Victoria made me realise that Melbourne was a very dynamic place Uh, and that's what I'd felt when I'd come here a few times. So I decided, look, I've got to get out. And so I'd applied for all these jobs across all of Victoria. I sent over 40 applications to Victorian firms from, you know, from Gippsland to Warrnambool uh, because I thought maybe they'll go for, you know, small town Tasmanian kid. And I got rejected for every single job every single one, and I pinned every single rejection letter to my wall above my desk during my final year in university. But I didn't want to stay in Tasmania. And even though I didn't have a job to go to, all many people that I knew here, I just thought, well, I'm going to have to have a go. Some friends of mine from Launceston had moved 
to Melbourne. So I asked them to put me up for two weeks and I hoped to find a job and somewhere to live in that time. And uh, so I packed up the suitcases and um, got on a plane. And so what happened? Things didn't go well because, you know, I'd been rejected by all these firms, but I knew which firms that I really wanted to work for. I wanted to work for a labour law firm. I wanted to work for a, a, a law firm that tried to help people. So I, I did something which I'm not overly proud of, but what I did, and I knew I only had two weeks that I was staying at my mate's place. So what I did is I got my CV and I put on my secondhand suit and I went to each of the law firms. So I went to Morris Blackburn, I went to Holding Redlick and I went to Slater and Gordon and I went to reception and I said, uh, look, I'm here to see the various people who I'd written to and had written back saying you don't have a job. When I got to see them, I said to them, oh, look, I'm the guy from Tasmania. Um, you were very nice in your rejection letter and you said that if I ever came to Melbourne, um, I should look you up to have a chat and I'm here now. My thinking was, look, if I can just meet them, then maybe something will happen. But it didn't. It just didn't. Like uh, I remember the guy from Morris Blackburn, he said to me, oh, I'm not sure that I wrote that in my letter. And I remember walking out at the end of that day just going, oh, my God, I just, I can't believe I've lied to all these people. But well, it, I don't know about lied, fudged, fudged a bit. Yeah, well, I didn't feel particularly good and it didn't really help me. But um, so then I just, you know, I went back and had to go to the dole office and register for the dole. So, you know, what else do you do? So hang on, but you do finish up. We're sitting here in your chambers in the County Court of Victoria and you are a judge. Yes. Something must have happened to Rush. <laughs> what it happened? Did. It did. Well, a couple of super fortuitous things uh, happened. At the, these are the days when there's no mobile phone. So I'm sleeping around Fitzroy trying to get into the Dole office and see people and, you know, I'm losing my glasses and things aren't going right. But there's then a message that uh, my mother um, phones up with and she said, these people have just contacted me looking for you and it's the people from the Leo Cusson Institute and they say, look, we know you didn't get into Leo Cusson um, but someone's just dropped out. If you would like a place, you'll have to come tomorrow. Can you do that? Then while I'm at Leo Cusson, I get a phone call from Slater and Gordon to say we've been trying to get in contact with you. Would you like to come in and have an interview? And the stars just at that moment aligned. But, but that, and surely you put that down to your persistence. Your persistence paid off. No. There may have been a bit of fudging in no, there, but your persistence paid off. No, that is absolute out and out pure luck. Um, people who are persistent tend to have more luck than people who aren't, is my experience, Arishan. But I'll tell you what then happened, Michael, because I'll tell you why it was pure luck. So I get the call, I go in to see Slater and Gordon and I have an interview with them. And you know what they say? You were very close, but no thanks. This is like a thriller. (laughs) We want to get the answer. Well, one of my mates ends up working for one of the unions and he um, says to me, look, you know, things aren't going well for you, I'll take you out. So we go out and we have some drinks and I'm talking to one of his mates who works at the union and he says, well, give me a CV We'll see what happens. I'll pass it around. And a month later, I get a phone call from Slater and Gordon. They say, oh, we'd just like to know, would you like to come in and have an interview? And it must have been from a completely different area (laughs) than the ones who had said it the first time. But this time I've got what I think is 
a foot in the door because I go and have the interview and at the end of the interview I'm fairly certain that things are as before, which is that they're going to say, no, thanks. But I say to them, at Leo Cusson, I've got to do three weeks' work experience. Why don't you let me come and do work experience for you for three weeks and you can see how it is? And they say, all right, and that was it. So you've got your foot on the first rung of the ladder as a young solicitor. What was it like being a young solicitor for a large firm like Slater and Gordon back then in the mid to late 90s? It was wonderful. I mean, the, the people the people were just fantastic. It was almost everything I could dream about. I was working at that stage for a firm which had just come out of Octetti, the big case against BHP. They were uh, litigators who did important work and the people that I met there were from all different sorts of backgrounds, which is not what you get in Tasmania. So I was working with, you know, people from Italian backgrounds, Greek backgrounds, Maltese backgrounds, and it was wonderful um, to learn about those sorts of people. And I say it and it sounds really strange, but those sort of people from different migrant backgrounds were not really part of my life. And they weren't practising law in Tasmania? No. I didn't, they weren't really at law school. They weren't in Launceston amongst my friendship group. Um, so it, it opened my eyes to many things, those people. And it was a political place too because at that stage government federally had just changed, the waterfront dispute was on. So it was a wonderful time uh, to be there for those people. But the work itself, that, that really opened my eyes. That uh, it was just such a privilege to be put into that position it was definitely hard work, but, and just to paint a picture off it for you, I mean, I, I was sitting in an office on the first floor above the Footscray Mall. There were crowds of people from all different backgrounds walking up and down that street that I had never seen before. But the people who would come up the stairs to our offices were generally from hardworking migrant backgrounds. They worked manual jobs in situations which I couldn't even contemplate to give their families opportunities, which I could relate to. But they came to me as this junior lawyer in their moment of need. You know, they had workers' compensation claims. They had injuries which might have derailed their futures and their families' futures forever. And here I am, this little kid out of Tasmania, entrusted to look after their rights at this critical time. It was just an incredible privilege and I loved it. And this next step in your career intrigues me because you've worked hard to get a job, you've given a job at Slater and Gordon which you love and you work hard at that job, but then you move to Vanuatu working for an Australian aid agency. How did that come about? I squarely blame my mother for that. Uh, she has this uncanny ability to pop up at these strange times in life and suggest things to me. So, for example, halfway through uh, year 12, she knew that I was academically going well and that I wanted to go to university. And she sat me down and she said, look, I'd really like you to think about a career as a television cameraman. 
And I, I still remember this conversation because we were outside the um, pet shop at Five Ways in Kings Meadows when she said it, and it was just so strange. But she said it to me, I think, because she wanted me to know that it's okay to think about different things and it's okay to have different experiences, even though there's this weight of history, there's this weight of family expectation that is pushing us towards a certain path. And I think she wanted me to know that she wouldn't be too worried if I did decide to become a TV cameraman, though secretly she wanted me to be a lawyer. But at this moment as well, I think, um, arose for her because she could see that though I loved Melbourne and though I loved my work, it was, you know, it was a heavy toll and I, I had struggled with that at times. You were working long hours? I was working long hours. And, and, and most days in the week you're probably not, yes. having, not having a full weekend off? No, and all the standard things which you get as a young practitioner as well, you are not sure how to deal with the stress. So you start preparing even earlier. You know, you start getting ready on Sunday afternoon. You get in that extra hour or half an hour earlier. You don't want to be the first one to leave. You forget sport and friends and relationships. You focus on your work because you're so pleased to be in that situation that you want to do it right. And I became really unhappy, so unhappy and so out of balance that I had to go and see a counsellor. And that was arranged for me by the firm. And I went to see that counsellor who gave me a series of tools to help me get things back in balance. And that was really important because if you spend too long out of balance, everything around you starts to collapse, your friendships, your health, your work. So in some ways, when she suggested this, I was really ready for it. Why would your mother have known anything about Vanuatu and an opportunity there? The way it came about is she cut out from the examiner, which is our local paper in Launceston, a picture of I think it was a carpenter who'd been to Vanuatu and he'd built some stuff there. And he, but he'd been part of this program called the Australian uh, Youth Ambassadors Program. And he'd come back to Launceston and he'd raved about it and the examiner had written it up and underneath it or near it, there was an advert for applicants for the program. So she sent this all to me and said, why don't you think about doing this? I can understand a carpenter going there and making things. What can a lawyer do in Vanuatu that has helped to the Vanuatu people? That is still a question that I struggle with today because I, my experience was in personal injuries and I went there as the principal solicitor to the public service administration, administration um, for Vanuatu. So I worked in administrative law. And let me tell you, I didn't know a lot about administrative law. But you kept a textbook handy, I assume. I did. I did. <laughs> and did it have the desired effect of giving you a break, giving you time to rebuild your energies, regenerate your enthusiasm, and then also take stock of where you were in your career and what you wanted to do? Absolutely. Vanuatu is a pretty small place. It's idyllic and it lends itself to... Uh, sloth. So I spent a lot of time talking to people, going to the beach by myself, thinking, and that was really outstanding. It's just great. It solidified a lot of things in my mind, gave me my energy back, and I started to think about my future. So back you come. How soon after that did you go to the bar? 
Uh, I came to the bar and read in August 2003. So I signed the role in November 2003. And who was your mentor? Christine Hanscom. She was my mentor for the first four or five months and then she took silk and then she made an arrangement for me to transfer to David Neal uh, and I finished my reading with him in 2004. Both have been incredibly supportive of me during my career at the bar and Christine in particular, she managed to get me into administrative law very early on and she allowed me to be a junior on a number of cases which I had no business being in but which got me into administrative law and that's that remained a strong part of my practice after those first years. And then in 2008 I approached David Neal because a set of chambers had come up on his floor and he said to me, well, if you come onto the floor, I'll get you some uh, occupational health and safety criminal work. And he did. And that became another really substantial part of my practice. So those, those two people were extremely helpful, extraordinarily helpful in broadening my practice. You've mentioned business plans. Were they something which, a tool which you used throughout your career as a barrister? Did you identify goals that you wanted to achieve and did you work towards achieving them? Yes, I've always used business plans from the moment when I started at the bar because I viewed starting at the bar as being starting a small business and I needed to plot a course for that business. But after three or four years, my wife and I had our first child and we have two children and so the business plans evolved from being simply about the business to being about the way I was going to conduct life. So my business plan started to build in my time to make sure that I looked after my children, my relationship with my wife and myself. So it became more an organisational plan for how we were going to move forward as a family because I became very concerned that the mistakes I'd made as a junior solicitor were being replicated as a junior barrister. So I, since that time, had tried to um, keep all the things in my life in balance so that I could live a good life, a life that I enjoyed. Once I started at the bar, it was all-consuming and the same thing started to happen. Unbalance, work became too dominant. And once you have children and a relationship, you have to create very specific time for those things as well. And so I also at the bar had got to the point where I needed some counselling and I... I've taken that opportunity up on several occasions. It helps to get things back in balance for me. And the business plan or the life plan became an integral part of that. Can you tell us what those tools were which you took up at that time and you've continued to use? Yes. So one of the things was to recognise the important things in your life. And that, for me, is simply writing them down. And then working out for all those things... How happy am I about each of those things? An example is I enjoy sport. So at the moment, am I doing enough sport or am I doing enough exercise? And if I rank that two out of 10, then I know that that's not where it needs to be. 
it, it needs to be, you know, somewhere between 5 and 10, preferably closer to 10. And that's what you try to get with all the areas in your life. So am I spending enough time with my wife? Am I spending enough time with my kids? And so it's just a very quick way of working out where the imbalances are. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. In preparing for this interview, you said that in a business plan at one time, you wrote down that being a judge was a position which you would, at some stage in your career, aspire to. Why was that? Was it just the next natural progression for a barrister to want to be a judge? Or did it particularly appeal to you as a method of working as a lawyer? A bit of both, I think. I've learnt so much by being in courts and being around other lawyers that I started to think about where I might go with my learning and how I might deploy that learning if I ever, you know, if I was in a position such as a judge. It's just one of the things that I started thinking about. And then I thought to myself, as I stayed in the law and stayed as a barrister, I thought, what are the natural progressions for me over the next 15 or 20 years? And that's why it came up. And I became more confident in in writing that down into my business plan, my life plan, because I thought with the experience that I've gained, with the knowledge, I think I could do that job and I could do it well. There's a big difference between writing down a goal and having it fulfilled. What was it like receiving a phone call from the Attorney-General offering you the position on the county court as a judge, which I assume came completely out of the blue? Well, it has to start with the slippers because... I was in chambers getting ready for a three-month occupational health and safety trial, which was going to be incredibly boring. I was the second junior. I had no interest in sitting around for three months looking at documents and hearing about fire spread patterns. And I had given back every other brief I had for those four months. My life was just going to become drudgery, drudgery for the end part of 2019. And so on that day, I showed up in chambers thinking, oh, why am I doing this? Put on my slippers and rather than do any work, I decided to go and get a cup of tea because I was so bored at 9.05. So I'm swanning around the kitchen in chambers in my slippers, uh, getting a cup of tea and chatting to people. When I hear the phone ring, in my chambers on the mobile. So I'm standing at my window looking over the Supreme Court in my slippers when I hear the message that it's the Attorney-General. And at that point I just started shaking. And she left her mobile number to return the call and I just couldn't remember the numbers. I just And I kept playing the message back and back and back, kept writing down 04. Then my mind would spin and I couldn't write down the rest of the numbers. I played it five or six times. But the thing I remember about that day And that moment are my slippers. So you've accepted it. You 
quickly start as a judge, which is what happens when people are offered a position, they immediately terminate their practice and promptly commence as a judge. When a barrister commences, there's a nine-month reading period. You sit in the chambers of your mentor, in your case, Christine Hanscom and David Neal, for that nine-month period working um, under their supervision. You can go to them, for, ask them questions and get advice. And Is there a similar system for judges? Not quite as formal. There is a, a judges program for new judges, but in my case, for example, it's only happening four months after I've started and I've heard numerous cases and given judgments in that time. So your real training was on the job training as a barrister, observing judges dealing with you and dealing with your cases? Yes, and also it's when you read judgments. I've found having read judgments, and that was strangely one of the things that I put into my business plan way back when, which is that I would always try to read cases uh, because oftentimes, as I'm now in court, I will remember what various judgments have said, not about a particular point of law, but about the way that a judge might have received evidence or why they've disagreed with a certain piece of evidence or the way that counsel's behaved that the judge has said something about. I hear those voices in my head as I'm writing something down. Why should I accept this piece of evidence? And I can hear a judge saying, I accepted this piece of evidence because it was from a treating doctor who treated this plaintiff for a long period of time. Or counsel's behaviour in putting that question was inappropriate. There was no proper basis for it at all. So I hear that. And when I see it being done in front of me, it comes back. So yes, it's seeing, but it's also reading and being part of the, the culture. That's what I was going to ask you about, being part of the culture. Do you therefore see yourself, feel yourself as a part of a tradition which goes back in effect hundreds of years in the common law with recorded cases and recorded judgments which create our law? You can actually feel yourself being a part of that. Very much so, very much so. I, I don't quite know why that is. Maybe it's because I've only really had one occupation, it's working in common law, and I've done that now for 20 years, and I, it's all I really know. I do feel part of it. I feel like I belong to something. Mentors can be very powerful and helpful people, influential people in the lives of all of us, and you, Arushan, seem to have consciously chosen some very influential mentors and been chosen by other people who have mentored you, starting with your grandfather, your mother, Christine Hanscom, David Neal. Do you see these people as having been significant influences in your life? Highly influential, highly influential, because if you understand one thing as a parent, it's that if only your children would listen, their lives would be much easier. And it's the same lesson you can learn from the mentors that I've had in my life. If you pay attention and you listen, then you don't have to go through the trauma of learning a lesson which has been learnt before. For example, one of my mentors was a, a gentleman by the name of Colin Lim. And Colin was a Singaporean Chinese man who ran an Indonesian restaurant in Launceston in the 1980s. And let me tell you, that's not an easy thing to do. But Colin was very generous with his time and he 
always said to us, watch and listen. Because if you stop and watch and listen, you will start to understand what is happening and what you can do to influence it. And that's a lesson I always abide by. And when I'm in court as a barrister, I was watching and listening and I will always remember his advice to me because that's how he made an Indonesian restaurant in Launceston in the 1980s successful. Those simple things you can get from any mentor if, you, if you're willing to learn from them, but you've got to listen. And I think in large part my success is because of the influences that those people have had on me. You've said that you hope to be a good influence upon young lawyers, young people coming into the law. Are you passing on Colin Lim's advice to watch and listen? It is still the most important thing for me and it's the most important thing that I teach. You watch and listen. I say, and I've said to my associates at the moment, uh, before we go into any case, I say the most important thing for you here is to watch and listen. You are learning and you will only learn if you do those two things. I'm not so interested in how well you can um, research this particular point. That's important. But courts are human places. They're dynamic places. And you don't get anywhere if you're not watching either the barristers or the witnesses or the people surrounding them. So that is the key. Watch and listen. Now that I'm a judge, I would like the opportunity to firstly say to young people coming into the law or even those who are yet to commence their careers in law school that the law is a welcoming place and it's a wonderful place. And if I can help them understand that there's a place for them, no matter what their background, no matter what the colour of their skin, no matter whether they speak English or not, the law offers you opportunities. And I would like them to understand that if they look at me as any sort of example about who might succeed in the law. Um, And then on a more intimate level with my associates in particular, who are young people out of law school, I would like to think that their first experiences in law are wonderful ones where you can talk not just about the immediate case, but the fact that the law is one of those binding forces in our community and is a force which can be really positive if we practice law properly. I think we could all learn from that great advice from Colin Lim. So thank you for sharing it with us, Arushan. Thank you for allowing us to speak with you today here in the County Court of Victoria and good luck with the rest of what has been so far a fascinating career. from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find useful links, a transcript of the show and some wonderful shots of our guests. We're keen to know what you think, so please reach out via all the usual channels. Let us know the questions you'd like us to ask, topics you'd like explored or ideas for future guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green recorded and mixed by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. 
We are coming to you this week and every week from the iconic County Court of Victoria on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue this discussion here today. 